The title of my lesson is Five Pillars of a World-Shaking Faith. So let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you and just uh, thank you for um, another day you've given us. Just thank you for who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for him. Lord, we thank you that you've accomplished redemption through him. Thank you for freeing us from, from our sin, giving, giving us new life uh, in him. And uh, Lord, we know that that same power that, uh, that rose him from the dead, Lord, uh, has also raised us to spiritual life. And uh, Lord, we um, thank you also that you've given us your word. Uh, Lord, uh, help us uh, by your grace to walk in its light, Lord, that we would be those who live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And uh, Lord, I uh, just uh, pray that you would uh, bless my efforts here today, Lord, get me out of the way. And uh, Lord, that you would exalt uh, your word and uh, that we would fulfill uh, your mission uh, to go and make disciples of all nations. And uh, Lord, I just uh, thank you for uh, your many blessings. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just give me a moment. All right, so I was thankful for the, uh, the opportunity to speak. And uh, my goal in this lesson here is to recover uh, what I think uh, are the most important tenets in developing a faith that shakes and conquers uh, the world as opposed to the kind that is shaken and conquered by the world. And so I have, uh, I've summed up these, these five principles into one sentence, and we're going to go over each one of them. I'm going to read the sentence, and then we'll break each of them down. So the first point is God's word is the ultimate standard. Uh, the second one is that reveals God as a, co as a covenant-keeping God. Three, who sovereignly saves a helpless covenant-breaking man. Four, so he might seek first God's kingdom and righteousness by discipling the nations. And five, resulting in the nation standing on God's word as their, as their source of law. So we'll start off with the, uh, the first point. Uh, God's word is the ultimate standard. So first and foremost, a world-shaking faith requires us as Christians to stand firmly on the rock-solid foundation of God's Word, as opposed to the shifting sands of human opinion. It is our starting point, our lens through which we see the world as God sees it, rather than as we wish to see it. The one who stands on the objective, unchanging Word of God is able to say with the Apostle Paul, let God be true, though every man be a liar. That's Romans 3, 4. When we talk about God's word as the ultimate standard, we mean it is the highest court of appeal. It has the final say in every area of human life and endeavor. To question or criticize its authority is to arrogantly assume that you are the ultimate authority. Uh, one theologian uh, has made an excellent observation in this this little piece of wisdom has actually helped me in my thinking. And he says this, quote, God has created inescapable categories which will necessarily be filled with content. The only question is, shall the content be that of the pretended wisdom of man or the actual wisdom of Almighty God? Men will always have an ultimate authority. Men will always have an epistemological touchstone. Epistemology, epistemology just means the study of knowledge. Men will always have a personal and corporate means of atonement. Men will always have categories of good and evil, legal and criminal, 
even of justification, sanctification, and glorification, and certainly of indoctrination, end quote. So understand that when men deny ultimate authority in God's word, the inescapable concept of ultimate authority does not magically disappear. It is rather transferred from God to some other source, and you usually find that man transfers it to his own mind and will, uh, which is the, the lie of autonomy, the self-law. And this is what we see increasingly today, and a prime example of this can be traced back to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. So uh, get someone to read uh, Genesis 3, uh, 1 to 5 here. Anyone want to read that for me? Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5. Go ahead, Steve. Thanks. Uh, so what we have here is, is Satan challenging the standard of God's word, suggesting to our first parents that they can be their own ultimate standard. In effect, Satan was saying, you don't need God as your standard. In fact, you can be like God, determining for yourself what constitutes good and evil. So the Garden of Eden, which was intended to be man's testing ground, was used by the devil to be the testing ground for God the Creator. Our first parents fell under the sway of Satan's lie and tested God's word, attempted to play God, and then tried to play the victim when God confronted their guilt. All attempts of man playing God is just that. It's an attempt. It never succeeds because man cannot transcend his creaturehood. He will always be what God made him to be and nothing else. And boy, isn't that something offensive to our day where we have people uh, who think that they can actually identify as something other than what they actually are, what God made them to be. So understand that God throws down all those who rise up and attempt to usurp his authority. The serpent now learns this lesson as he spends his days on his belly eating the dust, which is a sign of vile and debased nature. You cannot attempt to play God without bringing the judgment of the true God upon yourself. We see this uh, throughout biblical history. Uh, some examples are the Tower of Babel. Remember uh, their, their deal? They said, come, let us make a, a name for ourselves, a reputation for ourselves, and God brought his judgment upon them. Uh, we see this in the the case of, of Pharaoh, remember his attitude, it was, um, who is the Lord that I should worship him? God brought his judgment upon him. Nebuchadnezzar standing over his kingdom and, uh, and saying, look, look what I have accomplished with my might and power. God brought his judgment upon him. Uh, see it in the case also with Herod. He delivered up that oration and uh, the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. God brought his judgment upon him. Anybody remember what happened to him specifically? That's right. That's right. So these and many more uh, who fell under the sway of the lie of the beast here in Genesis 3 
and ended, up, and ended up being thrown down like the beast. You believe the beast? Become like a beast and die like a beast. That's the pattern. Psalm 49:12. man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And so we are left with an ultimatum. Either we humbly submit to God as the ultimate standard and thus place ourselves under the realm of blessing, or we make ourselves the ultimate standard and thus place ourselves under the realm of the curse. There is no neutrality. Our first parents obviously chose the latter and invited the curse on creation. And even though God would have been just to leave him in his cursed, miserable state, it was not in the plan of God to do so. And so this brings us to our next pillar. So the Word of God is an ultimate standard that reveals God as a covenant-keeping God. A covenant-keeping God who made a promise to condemned, covenant-breaking man that he himself would be the one to do what the first Adam failed to do. He would fulfill the demands of the covenant of works and subdue the beast. Not only that, but he would take upon himself the curse and restore blessing to the world. And this is the promise of the new covenant. The original covenant of works that God made with Adam was, obey me and you shall live, disobey me and you shall die. So although the word covenant doesn't appear anywhere in the text, all the characteristics of a covenant can be inferred from it. Who was in charge, what the rules were, what would be the consequences if those, if those rules were obeyed or disobeyed. So we know the story, Adam disobeyed, and contrary to the lie of the serpent who said he wouldn't die, he died spiritually that day, and he was eventually to die uh, physically and then eternally. But by believing the promise of the new covenant, he received the blessings and benefits of the new covenant, forgiveness of sin, law written under the heart, personal knowledge of God, even though the formal ratification of the new covenant has not yet been made. So this was the case for all Old Testament saints. They looked forward in faith to the person and work of Christ, and we look back in faith to the person and work of Christ. So understand that the gospel of grace was there in the Old Testament in promised form, not in covenantal form. So it was, it was revealed in, in the Old in types and shadows, uh, but formally established in the time of the New Covenant. Understanding that keeps us from the error of saying that men were once saved by law, but now by grace. No, men were always saved by grace through faith. The promise of the new covenant ran parallel to the old covenant until the formal ratification of the new covenant. Pascal Denault says this, he says, quote, everything before the new covenant was typologically linked to the promise of the new covenant. The promise was intertwined, um, was intertwined or linked with the covenants of the Old Testament. Example, Israel's redemption from Egypt as a type of the redemption from sin, inheriting the land of Canaan, inheriting the earth. The Old Covenant was subservient to the promise of the New Covenant, end quote. So the Old Covenant was a temporary, conditional covenant, conditions that man did, uh, did not have the strength to fulfill due to the weakness of his sinful flesh. A temporary conditional covenant that was going to eventually be made obsolete once the substance, Christ, was to appear on the scene in time and history of whom the old covenant 
progressively revealed in shadowy forms. The Old Covenant is subservient to the New Covenant in that it led people through the despair it aroused to the promised New Covenant in Christ. This is why it's described by Paul as a ministry of death. In and of itself, it could not offer life. And, it, and if it could, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It's Galatians uh, 3.21. And we know that if righteousness were through the law, then grace is nullified and Christ died for no purpose. That's Galatians 2.21. Oh, there we go. Got this up. Thank you. Yes, please. Yeah, there's our, our, five, uh, our five pillars. Okay, so one Reformed Baptist, uh, Philip Griffith, uh, says it this way, quote, The law was not designed as a way for man to save himself, but pointed to the fact that unless a perfect obedience is provided, there can be no possibility of God's blessings, least of all the salvation of the soul. We can say that the law came in alongside the promise of the new covenant of grace in order to manifest human inability so that the sons of men might look to the promised Messiah and be saved. The fact that one side would find the covenantal conditions impossible to keep did not invalidate the covenant. Israel's failure served God's end in regard to the new covenant in Christ. So question, what was Israel's failure? I'm looking for a verse in Romans. Anybody? No? All right. Romans 10.3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So they thought that their self-righteous, external righteousness was enough before God, but they were greatly mistaken. God always required perfect inward and outward conformity to the law of God, nothing less. This is what the covenant of works demanded, and what the covenant of works demanded, only the covenant of grace supplied in the person and work of Christ, who on our behalf perfectly kept the law in his life and undertook the law's curse in his death. Thus, a world-shaking faith requires us to recognize that there are only two categories of men. Those who betake themselves to the covenant of grace and rely wholly on, on Christ, the covenant keeper, and those who rely on their own self-righteousness, remaining cursed under the original covenant of works. All men after the fall are by default under the federal headship of Adam, standing condemned in their sin, determined to have their own way and play God over their lives, having no desire to submit to the true God. So the question must be asked now, how does man gain an interest in the covenant of grace? How does man go from being an Adam to being in Christ? The answer to this brings us to our next pillar. Does anyone have any comments or questions so far? I'm going a little fast because I'm trying to squeeze this all into one lesson, so forgive me. <laughs> No, I was asking if anybody had any questions so far. Yeah, we're moving on to our next. Yeah. In Romans 10, 3, uh, mm -hmm. not knowing about God's righteousness, is, is there, the word knowing, is there a, it's more than knowing, right? It's knowing within, it's spiritually knowing. Right, And that's what right. we're talking about, right? It's not just uh, I got the information and now I know. Sure. It's, it's when, when, when Paul says knowing, mm -hmm. he means living it. Right. 
Right. Yeah, when, uh, when Jesus was saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of God, what he was talking about there was that, that, it, that inward righteousness. They, they were only content with their external righteousness, right? They were like whitewashed tombs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll move on to our next, our next pillar, who sovereignly saves, this covenant-keeping God sovereignly saves a helpless, covenant-breaking man. So turning your attention once again to the Garden of Eden, one thing we know for sure is this. Man does the hiding and God does the seeking. A.W. Pink says it best. It is not Adam who sought God, but God who sought Adam. And this has been the order ever since. The only thing man is good at doing is hiding from God and making excuses for his sin. After our first parents sinned, when God confronted them in their hiding place, they tried to abdicate their responsibility by placing the blame elsewhere, right? Remember, uh, uh, the man said, this woman you gave me. And the, uh, the woman said, the, the serpent deceived me. He made me do it. Man, and in effect, they were saying, if only God put me in the right environment, then I wouldn't have acted in such a way. And so this, this frame of mind is, is very much with us today. Modern man seeks to, to place the blame for his problem everywhere else but himself, and he does this in subtle ways. Right? We have the folks who believe that man is a product of his environment, and that so-and-so wouldn't have committed this or that crime if he had just been prescribed medication and had been given more information and conditioning by the so-called experts. So listen to what uh, R.J. Rush Dooney says. He says, quote, In our modern world, sin itself is reduced to a mental health problem, a question for technologies to solve. Thus, one pop popular study of adultery concludes, quote, Adultery is a symptom of a social disease. We must treat it as such, end quote. If adultery is a social disease, the answer then is social treatment and social control, end quote. See, what does this assume? Man isn't the problem, it's what's happening to man. Man is a passive being, and the forces of nature are actively working against him and making him who he is and what he does. This is the religion of secular humanism in a nutshell. It assumes man's problem is outside of him rather than inside of him. But that idea is in direct contradiction to the words, I'm going to get to you in a second, to the words of Christ in, uh, in Mark 7, where Jesus says it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out of him, out of the heart comes evil. Go ahead, Jerry. I was just going to say, what is what's actually happening, right? The standard's being rejected. The theonomy's being rejected. Mm -hmm. You have Adam who failed in self-governance mm -hmm. and his family governance, and they both blame God for their own that's right. That's right. Whenever theonomy is rejected, it's always in favor of autonomy. Um, all right, where was I here? Oh, okay, so the problem is inside him, and thus that's where the change needs to be. But the problem is man doesn't want to change himself. Because of his sinful nature, he is accustomed to self-acceptance rather than self-denial. He convinces himself 
that he's fine just the way he is and, and, and no need of change. His mind is at hostility to the law of God and cannot submit to it. In fact, when he encounters the law of God, he is only aroused to do more evil. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, 5 that, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So understand that the law in and of itself is not man's problem. Paul in that same chapter says that the law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is man's negative response to the law due to his sinful nature. Quoting again the Apostle Paul in Romans uh, 7.13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Thus, man is hopeless and helpless unless a supernatural, intervening work of a sovereign God changes his heart. This is exactly what he does in the covenant of grace. He takes that law, which was written on the tablets of stone, that very law in which man is hostile to, and he supernaturally writes it on the tablets of the human heart. Uh, Paul, Paul explains this in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Also, uh, Ezekiel talking about the promise of the new covenant, I will spr sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, uh, and, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. That's Ezekiel 36. So this is exactly what Jesus was referring to when he said to Nicodemus, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's John 3, 5. And this is entirely the work of a sovereign God. No one can birth themselves into the kingdom. God does it by his grace, right? Romans 9, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. A world-shaking faith requires us to recognize this biblical reality of the total sovereignty of God and the utter helplessness of man. And unless churchmen today start recognizing that, they will be no different from the humanists who think that man is neutral, He's okay. He just needs a push in the right direction with our help. They will always resort to gimmicks and pragmatic ways in which they can manipulate man into making a decision for Christ as a little add-on to their life. Conversion is treated by these men as a ticket to be punched rather than a radical transformation. But we were converted for something, weren't we? When one's heart is changed by the Holy Spirit, he should now be asking himself the question, now what, right? Francis Schaeffer's question, how, how shall we live? Regeneration isn't an end in itself. It's a, it's a means to empower us to fulfill a task. What is that task? The answer to that question brings us to our next pillar where we will see that salvation makes up more than just regeneration, more than just conversion. Any questions on or comments on that so far?
Okay. One quick question. You have the, uh, not question, but comment. Sure. You have the stone where the law has been written. Mm-hmm. Equated with the stony heart, right? Mm-hmm. One condemned, right? Whereas the softened heart, because of the, the heart of Christ. It responds. Yeah. Amen. Amen. All right, so moving on to number four now. Um, so he might seek first God's kingdom and righteousness by discipling the nations. So the Bible is more than a quiet time devotional. It's a sword to slay dragons. It's a blueprint for dominion designed for the army of the Lord and has real-world relevance. It instructs us how we ought to live in this world. I, I should add, it instructs us how to live in God's world. This world does not belong to Satan. It belongs to Christ. He is in charge. A world-shaking faith requires that we recognize that God did not place us on this earth only to have us seek escape from it. Rather, he calls us to assume godly responsibility and take dominion over it. Right? We have the dominion mandate in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? This is what man was made for. This was his, his, his original purpose and task to take uh, dominion as God's stewards over the earth. And true biblical dominion is the lawful exercise of authority under God and in terms of his law and word. The concept of, of dominion, like the concept of ultimate authority, as we discussed in our first pillar, is an inescapable concept. It's inevitable. Men will take dominion, either in a godly fashion or in an ungodly fashion. It is the sin of man to take the inescapable structures that God created and distort their design. He does exactly this with dominion. He distorts its design to be man-centered rather than God-centered. So with the fall, man's nature became perverted, and therefore his means of taking dominion is by his own autonomy, self-law. His attitude is, my will be done. As a result, he works to advance and bring everything under the dominion of his own kingdom built on the shifting sands of human opinion, which is destined to fall in due time. Right? We see this happen with all the kingdoms which have their origin and source in man, Babylon, Persia, Rome, so on and so forth. In regeneration by the Holy Spirit, man's nature is restored, and therefore his means of taking dominion is by God's law, the very law which is now written on his heart. His attitude is, thy will be done. As a result, he works to advance the kingdom of Christ by bringing every area of his activity under Christ's lordship. Only this kingdom doesn't have its origin in man or the world. It has its origin in heaven. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And Gary DeMar rightly says of this verse, this, this verse refers to, quote, the origin of the kingdom, not to a restriction of where it operates. Jesus was not saying that his kingdom floats in the air without touching the world. He did not mean that he rules heaven, but has left earth to be ruled by Satan. Rather, he means that the legitimacy of his rule has its origin in the eternality of heaven, not in the created world, end quote. 
Moreover, the book of Daniel refers to the kingdom of Christ as a stone cut out by no human hand, meaning that man would not contribute to the setting up of this kingdom. This kingdom would start out as a stone in the first century and gradually grow to become a great mountain that fills the whole earth. The good news of the kingdom of God is that an unshakable kingdom has been set up without human hands to shake and collapse all the kingdoms that are set up with human hands. And we share in this kingdom, don't we? Right? Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus Christ doesn't just win in the end. He wins here and now in time and history. History is his story. It's the story of how Christ overcomes all opposition. And we are to live in light of, the, light of this reality, the reality of the victory of Christ here and now. 1 John 5, 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Right? He calls us to live by faith, not by sight. Cultural circumstances uh, may look chaotic to the human eye, like right now, but we, we must keep in mind that he uses even the darkest times to refine his church. We must remember that in the midst of all this, Christ is enthroned on the supreme seat of power, the right hand of God, and there he is putting all his enemies under his feet, and he calls us his international church bride, a reconstituted Israel made up of every tribe, language, and people to do what national Old Testament Israel failed to do, and that is to extend his sway, his rule over the nations. And this is the great commission uh, that our Lord gave us, which is a, a reinstatement of the dominion mandate given in the garden. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Psalm 2.8, the Father speaking to the Son of God says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The rest of that psalm spells out a summons and a warning to all the rulers and kings of the earth to pay homage to the Son or perish. If you haven't come to recognize uh, this fact already, now's the time. The Bible is a very political book. It has an absolute monarch, Jesus Christ. His, his, his word has his, uh, has his law written in it, and it has universal jurisdiction. For far too long now, Christians have reduced this to a church book about the afterlife that has relevance only within the walls of the institutional church. We've done this also with the meaning of the kingdom of God. We've reduced it to mean the institutional church. But the kingdom of God is, quote, a divine political order that stands over and against all the political orders of men, end quote, says Stephen Perks. This is the reason why the first century Christians posed such a threat to Rome, because they refused to worship the Roman state as God. They saw themselves 
as governed by the laws of a king that transcended the state. And it was this fact that Rome could not tolerate. So as ministers of a new covenant, ambassadors of Christ, we have a, a call to go forth as God's army into the world, wielding the ultimate standard of God's word, modeling what true kingdom life looks like and call men and nations to repent and enter this divine, unshakable political order set up by Christ. And as we do this, the result is that nations will willfully stand on God's word as, our, as, as their source of law. And that will be our, our next and last point. Any, any uh, comments or questions? Good? Tracking with me? Okay. Okay, so this resulting in the nations standing on God's word as their source of law. <clears throat> so we have just seen that God doesn't convert, uh, doesn't convert us as an end in itself. He converts us to empower us to fulfill a mission. His mission, to walk in righteousness and transform nations with the power of the gospel. So now we will talk about the, uh, the resulting implication this transformation has on nations. But before I do, I must establish two very brief but important points for you to keep in mind. Firstly, what is a nation? A nation is a body or company of men bound by the same values, principles, customs, law, etc. Secondly, the source of law in any uh, culture or nation is the God of that nation. It is in respect of these two factors that we can say that every nation is religious, whether they acknowledge it or not. This is why the notion that you shouldn't mix religion and politics is absurd. You can't help but to mix them. The religion of a nation determines the politics of that nation. In other words, their underlying principles and values inevitably manifest themselves in every area of life, including the political sphere. No nation is neutral, no matter how much they pretend they are. Every nation has underlying principles that govern the way they function as nations. And when we locate the source of those principles and values, we then find the God of that nation. This ties in with what I said on our, our first pillar concerning inescapable categories. Every nation will inescapably have a God concept. If that God is not God the creator, it will be some false God within creation. Understand that God blesses and curses nations in terms of which God they have as their source of law. Anyone want to read uh, Psalm 33:12? Yeah, all right, good. Right. Thank you. So we can infer from that text that as a nation is blessed that has a true Lord as its God, so too a nation is cursed that has a different false Lord as its God. 
The Apostle Paul says of the ungodly uh, in, Romans, uh, in Romans 1 that they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So what is the lie Paul is talking about? It's the lie of the serpent that I mentioned earlier, the lie of autonomy, man as his own God, man as his own source of law. Not only, not only does this apply on an individual level, but on a national one as well. And so nations, when it boils down to it, only have two options when it comes to their source of law that they will stand on. Uh, God's infallible word or man's fallible word. This is, the cho- this is the choice between life or death, freedom or slavery. The life support of a fish is the water. For a fish to remove itself out of the water is not freedom, but death. When nations remove themselves out of the world of God's law and word and celebrate it as freedom, there you have a culture of death and the politics of death. Proverbs 8.36 declares, All those who hate God love death. Social chaos reigns. They are left with the situation in the book of Judges. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And this is the case with America, which was once foundationally Christian and was blessed for it, but now with those foundations being forsaken and humanism steadily taking its place, we have people who celebrate the so-called freedom to have an abortion and many other things we do that are antithetical to God's word and label it as freedom and love. This just goes to show that when man is is left to distinguish good and evil for himself without any reference to God, he will always end up calling good evil and evil good. The book of Isaiah declares a woe, a curse on those that do this, right? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. But as the church as a divine political order, we confront and expose the anti-Christian foundations of men and nations and call them to repentance, to bring them to acknowledge that there is only one true source of authority. We call them to submit themselves to the supreme unlimited government of Christ from which all human levels of government originate. Self, self-government, family government, church government, civil government. And doing this doesn't come without ruffling people's feathers. The apostles in the book of Acts got accused by the authorities of turning the world upside down. Our faith is a world-shaking faith. It means war. We are declaring war against the humanistic social orders of men by saying that there is a supreme governor whom you must obey or perish. This is especially offensive in our time where the vast majority in our, na- in, our, in our nation see the state government as the final and highest authority, as omnicompetent, with no limits to its jurisdiction and power. And when no law or authority is recognized beyond the state, the state then is God. And when you have the Christian who comes along and says, the state is accountable to a higher authority, a higher law, You threaten the religious foundations of the state and stir trouble because you are reminding them that they have limits, that they're not God. Remember, no one is neutral. The state is just as much a religious institution as the church. They have an established religion, and it is humanism, man as God, 
man as the measure of all things. This is not only the case with the state, but with the nation at large. The state has become the embodiment of humanism. It's, it's as uh, one German philosopher, Hegel, called it, God walking on earth. Humanism is, is steadily hijacking every sphere of life. And Christians are quietly sitting back in their own corner of private spirituality, waiting to get raptured out of here, while the humanists do a better job of fulfilling their own version of the Great Commission. It's high time for us Christians to get moving, to wage war, to fulfill the great commission our Lord gave us, the, the conversion and discipleship of men and nations, God's law and word. This involves changing the very foundation of nations. You cannot change a nation without changing its source, its established religion. And the way we convert nations is not like the Soviet Union by gunpoint. We actually have a much greater power than that. It's the power of the gospel. We have marching orders from the king of kings to go and sound forth this gospel. And as we do this, as we spread the aroma of Christ, his enemies are driven away to destruction. His sheep are drawn in. Their minds are renewed by the gospel, resulting in outward reformation. And as widespread conversion occurs, multitudes begin to inquire of God's word for the answers. People at every level of society begin to ask themselves, how can I apply God's word to my every area of activity and influence? And this is exactly what Isaiah is talking about when it says in Isaiah 2, 2 to 3, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So as a result of Christians seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and bringing the nations under the influence of the gospel, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of of our God and his Christ. Christianity becomes the established religion, the foundation of all nations. His law and word are upheld by the people in every sphere of life and thought. Christ makes his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. But, but this, this doesn't happen overnight. Do you expect a seed to grow into an enormous tree overnight? No then quit expecting the kingdom of God to do the same. Its growth does not come on our terms, but on God's terms. We live in a society that wants speedy results the moment it starts something. Such is not the way of the kingdom of God. We must learn to think long-term and act accordingly, to make godly, even risky decisions that impact future generations these, de these decisions often start out very small, but in time, God's timing, they will bear more and more fruit. Jesus Christ is Lord of all nations, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Most of us believe this in theory, but we must ask ourselves, do I believe it in practice? 
the rise and fall of nations hinges upon the answer of that very question. And that concludes our lesson. I, I didn't know it actually finished that and squeeze that all into one lesson, but glad it did. Any uh, comments or questions? Excellent. Excellent. Amen. Steve? Thanks, brother. <laughs> a little nervous, but thank you. <laughs> I do have a question. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, well, right, na na nations is just a, nations, I gave the definition here, it's a company of men bound by the same values and principles. But when, when Jesus is, is saying to go and disciple the nations, when he's giving that great commission, most people interpret that as go and make disciples among the nations. But what he's actually saying is, make the nations my disciples. Like, disciple the nations as nations. You know what I mean? Not just people among the nations, but actually disciple them as nations. Mm -hmm. I hope that answers your question. Okay. Any other? Nope. We good? All right. Well... Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we uh, just uh, thank you again for who you are, Lord. We thank you that we can uh, gather here and, uh, and uh, hear your word and, and learn from it. And Lord, we just ask that you would, uh, by your grace, help us to uh, apply this to our lives, uh, Lord, that we would go out and uh, fulfill the Great Commission to, to conquer the nations, Lord, that you would give us the, the grace uh, to do just that, Lord. Um, and Lord, we just uh, thank you for this day, your day, Lord. We just ask that uh, as we worship you, that uh, our, our worship would be sweet and pleasing to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.